Good morning. How's everybody? Good? Good. Get organized up here. Is this thing good? Is this mic thing good? Are you coming through on Zoom? Yeah? Does it sound good? That's because of Rashad. All right, well. It's not me. It's the Lord. Amen. He's helping us both. All right. Well, it's second Sunday. It's Psalm Sunday. And some of you are like, wait, but we finished Psalm 119. And you know what? We did. But that's only one chapter. There's actually a whole lot of chapters in Psalms. It did. It took us years. It's been years in Psalms 119. Um, but there are more chapters in Psalms. And we're going to continue to use our second Sundays to do a Psalm Sunday. Uh, you'll be able to hear from other preachers and men who are growing and other pastors. And yeah, we'll continue to use it uh, to expose us to other men who are preaching the word and, and to draw and to bring up others who need the opportunity to grow. So it's me today. Stuck. I'm glad you made it. You came in while, while we were praying, and I'm glad you came then, because if it wasn't for you, everyone else is dead. Or less excited. Or just not faking it. Something. No. She, she's genuine. She's genuine. All right. Thank you, Cheryl. I love you. All right. Psalms 90 is where we're going to be. If you want to go ahead and start turning there, uh, that'll help us get started. Psalms itself, the entirety of Psalms is interesting. I'm going to give you a little bit of overview uh, of some stuff. Do we have PowerPoint up there? Um, Psalms is actually, as a whole book, is divided into five smaller books. So Psalms is a book of books as well. Psalm 90 actually is the beginning of the fourth book of the Psalms. Um, just for kind of a, a reference point as to where you're going. Now, one thing that maybe gets overlooked, especially when you just maybe have a, a kind of a, a generalized view of the Psalms, we all know that David was the psalmist, uh, but David was not the only psalmist. There's actually quite a few authors to the Psalms. Now, David did most of the work. David wrote uh, 75 of the Psalms, maybe more, because there are some that are anonymous. They get attributed to him, but we know for sure that David wrote 75 of them. Now, most of the time, it'll tell you right at the beginning of the psalm uh, who wrote that psalm. It'll say a psalm of David, uh, typically. And so, you know, so there are 73 psalms that start that way that are specifically labeled a psalm of David. But what about those other two? Well, when you start to study your Bible the way that God instructed us, and you, and you cross-reference scripture, and you start to read the entirety of the Bible, you find a couple simple verses like Acts 4.25 quotes from David uh, and is attributing that saying to David, which is actually found uh, in Psalm 2. And then you get the same thing in Hebrews 4.7. Hebrews 7 says, well, David said, and it's a quote from Psalm 95. Neither one of those Psalms are directly attributed to David in the introduction, but the word of God comes back and attributes both of those Psalms to David. So David did most of it. Asaph was also one of the authors of the Psalms. He's credited with four, I'm sorry, 12 of the Psalms. Then Korah 
the sons of Korah, so a family here. Um, if you remember in the Old Testament, Korah didn't start off too great. Uh, the children of Korah, the sons of Korah, had a, a hard time. They rebelled against Moses and Aaron, and uh, the earth swallowed them up. That wasn't too great. But apparently it was good enough to teach a lesson to some other uh, of the family members, some of the, the, the future uh, of, of Korah uh, or, or whoever was following, because somebody survives and writes some psalms. Solomon writes two. Moses writes one, which is actually Psalm 90, which is where we'll be today. And that's why I was bringing this up as, as an introduction. We're actually looking at the, the, the one singular psalm that Moses wrote uh, in, in the book of Psalms. It is entitled A Prayer of Moses, which we'll be seeing here in a minute. Ethan, who is a wise man and, and a musician, is, is given one psalm, uh, as well as, as Heman. I was, when I, now, when I was a kid growing up, Chris, you're about my age. You remember He-Man. He-Man wasn't known for his, for his wisdom back then. That He-Man was known for his abs uh, and Speedo and his sword, right? But this He-Man in the Bible was known for his wisdom. In fact, when, it, when it's talking about the wisdom of Solomon, it says that he was even wiser than Ethan and He-Man. So these guys were apparently until Solomon came along, these were kind of the standard for wisdom. So these were wise men. And then there are about 48 remaining that are uh, anonymous. Uh, and there are some you know, speculation or, or strong inference as to who wrote some of them. But we don't even know for sure with all of them. And that's fine. God delivered it to us. Um, I think that David authored most of those other psalms as well. Now, in terms of Moses, so we're looking at a psalm of Moses today. Moses was actually uh, a fairly prolific singer and songwriter himself. Maybe you didn't know that. We know of Moses as, as the leader in the wilderness, and I know maybe that's a little bit small text there, uh, but Exodus 15 then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song. So he, he was a, a singer, a worship leader. I, I picture Moses as a little bit like, um, like who? Who would he be like? Like Chris? No. I don't know. I don't know what kind of singer Moses would be. Chris isn't a singer. Anyway, doesn't matter. Uh, Deuteronomy 31, 22, Moses therefore wrote this song. So you have a song that, that Moses wrote uh, as a praise to the Lord, Deuteronomy 32. And Moses came and spake all the words of this song, another song that he, that he wrote or that he at least recited in the ears of the people. And then Revelation chapter 15, this is a really interesting one in verse 3, talking about multitudes uh, that come out of, of tribulation, and they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God. So even in heaven, something that Moses wrote is being sung. There is a song of Moses that will be sung uh, in the heavens in the future. And it's the song of the Lamb, and it's also the song of the Lamb. So that's an interesting Interesting statement about Moses' song. Now, what we have here in Psalm 90, as I mentioned, is actually a prayer. Uh, as you look at the beginning of Psalm 90, often most Bibles will, will give you this little italicized portion just before the, the, the verse one starts. And it says, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. That's the way it's titled. If you were to bump back one Psalm to Psalm 89, you would see it's titled, Maskil of Ethan, the Ezraite. So there's your, your one psalm from Ethan. And a lot of psalms will start that way as you look through them. So as you read the psalms, if you jump ahead to Psalm 91, actually, uh, 
I don't have anything there in terms of authorship. Uh, and different Bibles write, write things differently, but Psalm 91 would be uh, one of those that doesn't have a specific author. Then you get to Psalm 92, and it says a psalm or song for the Sabbath day, uh, the way that it's titled. And again, if you don't have that written in your Bible, that's okay. Uh, some, some include it, some don't. But that's where we're at. So this is the work of Moses. And I want to read the entire psalm. It's 17 verses. You can follow along. The way we know what we're working with. And then we'll start to break it down, okay? All right. Verse one. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Thou turnest man to destruction and sayest, return, ye children of men. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Thou carriest them away as with a flood. There is as sleep. In the morning they are like grass which groweth up. In the morning it flourisheth and groweth up. In the evening it is cut down and withereth. For we are consumed by thine anger, and by the, thy wrath are we troubled. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins, in the light of thy countenance. For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are threescore years and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knoweth the power of thine anger? Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? And let it repent thee concerning thy servants. O satisfy us early with thy mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us in the years wherein we have seen evil. Let thy work appear unto thy servant and thy glory unto their children and let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands, establish thou it. Let's pray, and then we'll look at this psalm. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the men that you've used throughout time and uh, over, over ages and ages to deliver your word to us, from Moses to David to to, to Christ himself, God, to, to John. Uh, we're grateful for all of it. We thank you for what we can learn uh, from Moses, from, his, from this prayer, from Moses, who you call a man of God. Lord, at the end of the day, uh, I pray that we, as men and women in here, would be known as, as men and women of God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so since it was written by Moses, that makes this the very first psalm that was ever penned. Moses lived, um, you know, roughly 500 years before David. So, so this is the earliest. This is the first uh, of all of the psalms. And as it says, it is a prayer. As, as, as Moses gets into this, he begins, like many prayers do, by exalting the Lord. Uh, and, and just, you know, a side note in terms of prayer, if you're going to pray, this is a good way to start. God is worthy of praise. God is worthy of exaltation, and he says that when you come into his presence and into his courts, that you should come with praise, with thanksgiving, with rejoicing. And so Moses does that. He exalts the Lord. He says, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. 
before the mountains were brought forth or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, then he just makes this declaration. Thou art God. And this is a good way to begin your time in the presence of the Lord to declare to God what he already knows to be true. But when we declare those things, it helps us to align our hearts with what God has already declared to be true. Thou art God. And he says it in two different uh, types of context. He's talking here about God's faithfulness is what he's talking about here in the beginning, uh, this first two verses. We're going to break this chapter down into four sections. Section one is, is God's faithfulness. And he says this, Thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. I want to give you two different uh, applications or, or ways to look at this all generations idea. Uh, number one, this is, again, Moses writing. So from his perspective, it could be looking at just the generations of his own life. In all of my life, Moses is saying, you have been faithful in all the kind of the generations and seasons of my life. And if you think about the big picture of Moses' life, a baby in the Nile River in a basket, a child in the courts of Pharaoh, a felon in the desert, a leader of God's people, a wanderer in the wilderness, all the way to, to death in the very presence of the Lord looking into the promised land at what could have been. Moses had a lot of different seasons or, or maybe generations of his life. And, and what he is recognizing is that through all of it, God has been faithful. And a lot of it wasn't good or easy in Moses' life. From starting out as a babe that was, that was commanded to be thrown into a river so he could be eaten by crocodiles, so that he could be killed to get rid of, God was faithful. To his own foolishness of murdering a man and having to flee, yet God was faithful. Through, a, through a years of wandering as a felon in a desert, to the place where God came back and called him back and, and brought him back into a place where he could lead the people. And he ends up leading a people that would rebel against the Lord. Right, Moses spends the last 40 years of his life wandering in a wilderness with the people that he was leading, not because of his own choices and, will, and, and, and wickedness, but because he was, was given a call to lead these people. Yet he's saying God is faithful in all of that. Put that in your mind as we get started, because that's the way that life works for a lot of us. We look back at, at seasons and generations of our own life, and we're like, man, I feel like that was just a completely different me. But God was faithful. And it'll be that way all the way up into the end, should you choose to, to, to allow him to be. And then it, it even broadens out from there. You know, that when, I, when I was looking at this and thinking about this, and I recognized something right away, um, that this is actually my prayer. That in all generations of fifes, that we would look at God and say, God has been faithful. That's my last name, if you didn't know. That's me. And my father had that same prayer. I had a father who accepted Christ, um, you know, in his young 20s. And then he met my mother and they got, they got plugged in into a church. They got married. And then me and my brothers came. And this has been his prayer. And this is my prayer. And this is, this is our prayer as parents. And I think this is also part of Moses' prayer, not just for his children physically, but for the generations of people that he's leading, for all of Israel, the prayer is an ongoing, a perpetuating prayer 
that God, that you would be faithful in all generations. I want God to be faithful in Julian's generation. That's my son. But I want God to be faithful in my grandkids' generation as well. And I know my father is praying the same. Praise the Lord for a God-fearing father. And so Moses has this same mindset as he enters into prayer and he's thanking God for his faithfulness throughout all, all generations. Psalm 102, verse 24. I said, O oh my God, take me not away in the midst of my days. Thy years are throughout all generations. This is, uh, if I remember right, one of those anonymous, unattributed psalms. But whoever it is, they're quoting from, from Moses here. They're using that same verbiage, that same language, uh, that God is faithful in all the years, throughout all generations. So Moses not only had an impact on the generations of, of the people he was leading, but we see now that his impact is reaching to generations after his death, centuries after his death. Um, so, so he keeps going. Now, after that, he says in verse 2 that God is God from everlasting to everlasting. So not only from generation to generation, which we would think about in terms of human lifespan and human existence and, and our ability to understand God. But then he takes it beyond that. And he says, from everlasting, from forever, before there was mountain, before there was creation, before there was anything, until everlasting, until whatever is way, way down the road, well, you're still faithful and thou art God. Psalm 93, 2. It says, Thy throne is established of old. Thou art from everlasting. Again, this is that, that same type of idea. Before you did anything at all, you were God, is Moses' declaration. And this is a powerful declaration, an important thing for us just as we come before the Lord in prayer to remember and to recognize. It doesn't matter what God has done for me or maybe in my perspective, not done for me today or in the past week or in the past few months. Maybe it feels like God has been distant, that I'm separated, that, that something's wrong. But you know what? He's God. Before you were ever created and before there was an earth and before there were mountains, he was God. And you know what? He didn't change. He didn't change. So it's good to identify and see him rightly. God is always God. We must see that. Psalms 103, verse 17. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto children's children. Again, the same type of, uh, uh, of, of, of verbiage that Moses used. So here you have uh, the psalmist from 103, which is David this time in 103 referencing back to Moses. So Moses is influencing David. And our prayer is that today Moses is even influencing us, right? So from generation to generation and from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. So let's talk a little bit about some application. And the application number one is this. Are you praying for your children and your children's children? When, when we look at the Bible and we look at our, uh, our lifespan now, this is, this is typically what you get in terms of generations on the earth. Most, you know, average people will get to see their grandchildren. Some will get to see their great-grandchildren. Um, 
but this is where the Bible instructs us. You should be praying for your children and your children's children. If you're here and you're a parent, as in a mother and a father, you need to be praying for your children and you need to be praying for them regularly. And you need to pray that they would recognize God's faithfulness in their generation and in the next generation to come. If you're here and you're not a parent, you're not off the hook. Because the reality of this prayer is, is as I wrote it up there, well, then how are you investing in the next generation? You don't have kids? Well, then are you discipling? What has God given you? If you're here and you've been discipled, if you've been with us and you're growing and you're like, but I'm single or I'm married and I don't have any kids. Well, okay, but you still have the responsibility to pray for the next generation and the generation after that. As you know, in 2 Timothy 2, 2, our discipleship verse brings four generations. And so we should be praying down the line for generations to come that, that they would be faithful and that they would see God's faithfulness to them. And maybe you're really new here. Maybe you're like, I don't have kids and uh, I'm not even, uh, I've not been discipled. I don't really know that I have a lot to offer people. Well, then the application is this is going to be, then who are you sitting under? Who are you allowing to lead you? Do you have somebody in your life that would be like a Moses to you, a mentor, somebody that you know is praying for you and for your growth and, and for what will become of you in your generation and the next generation? So there is an application for all of us from this short introduction uh, of Moses's prayer. Now, I think this chapter is packed full of interesting and deep insights as well. I'll toss a couple of them at you. Moses had a bunch of wisdom that uh, you could spend a lot of time unpacking. But here's an insight from Moses. I didn't put it on a slide, so you just have to write it and listen. Verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, we won't talk about the mountains, but that's an interesting that uh, he identifies the mountains before the earth uh, in terms of how he's setting it up. Anyway, before the mountains were brought forth, this is the interesting part that I'll talk to us about for a minute. Or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world. He makes a distinction here between those two words that we, we frequently use as, as interchangeable. Earth, world. We live on the earth, we live on this world, we're, you know, uh, we think those are, are basically synonyms. But Moses isn't the only one. There are a number of places in scripture where you do get a strong distinction between the two. Here, Moses points out the two of them in terms of being uh, unique creation. Before thou hadst formed the earth and before thou hadst formed the world, you would get the same type of thing in First Chronicles chapter uh, 1630, before him all the earth, the world shall be stable, it shall not be moved. You get both of those words used and, and, and kind of played against each other. Job 37.12, and it is turned round about by his counsels, that they may do whatsoever he commandeth them upon the face of the world in the earth. That's an interesting sentence structure upon the face of the world in the earth uh so you get a couple places like that where 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 there's a distinction made uh so there are two different words at play here earth now generally this the hebrew word appears a ton uh in the bible it appears over two thousand times it generally means land earth 
as opposed to heaven. So the ground, the surface, the dirt. Uh, it's used 712 times as earth in the Bible. But it's also used 1,543 times as land. So that's how it's commonly translated. So it, it refers to the physical ball of dirt that we're sitting on most often. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It's that same word in both Hebrew and in English. In Job 38.4, where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Same word here, declares if thou hast understanding. You get the same thing in the New Testament with a, a Greek word, Hebrews 1.10. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hand. So a distinction between earth and heaven. Now, this other word, world, uh, is not nearly as common. In the Hebrew, it only appears 36 times. 30, uh, 35 of them, it's, it's translated as world. One time, it's translated as habitable part. And so you'll get things like this, Isaiah 18.3. All ye inhabitants of the world. So the world is something that you know, we can inhabit or dwell in or with. And then the next phrase says, and dwellers on the earth. So again, you get this distinction, inhabitants of the world and dwellers of, on the earth. Uh, John chapter 15 and verse 19. The New Testament gives us some interesting insights about the idea of the, of the world. John 15, 19. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. Jesus is speaking. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Now, he's not talking about the physical earth because he's not saying that the disciples came from another planet. He's like, you guys are aliens, you're Martians. But he's saying that you're not of this world. So it's, it's, it's being used differently there. John, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, now you're going to get some, some clearer definition and instruction here. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Ephesians 2, 2, where in time past you walked according to the course of this world. And so oftentimes in the Bible, when this word world is used, it's not talking about the physical ball of dirt, but it's talking about the course, the, the spirit of, of this age, the spirit of the world that is driving it, the natural uh, tendencies and desires that we have. Love not the world or the things that are in it. What's in the world? It's not trees and rocks and dirt. It's lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes and pride of life. It's attitudes, it's mindsets, it's emotions. It's those things that drive us. It's the course of the world that Ephesians 2 says we all lived in prior to being saved. And now we have a spirit that lives in us that can, that can combat the course of this world that we don't actually, like Jesus was saying to his disciples, we don't have to be of this world. I still have to live on this earth. Well, yeah, I am an alien now. Because being of a different world is foreign too. Romans 12, 2, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it doesn't mean, I, well, I shouldn't look human anymore. Right? It means that there is a spiritual side of us as well. And it has to be transformed. All right, so, so, so Moses knew this. Moses has given us that. Moses knows that there is both a physical world and a spiritual world, and they are both very real, and they are both very much at play all the time 
uh, and, are, and are engaged and interacting and that the course of this world is not the direction that God wants his people to go because we ought not to be of this world. And finally, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. So I, I give you that to say, study the Bible. I mean, words matter. And short phrases matter. And you can start to get in there and look at it. And God has given you all kinds of really important, and sometimes we might say really deep stuff. But really, if you just start cross-referencing scripture, you realize, oh, it's not that tough. Like, it's not that difficult. We read about five verses about the world, and we got a good picture, a good definition of what it is. Don't be a part of it. And then you can pull out some really good applications from that. So don't be afraid to jump in and read and, and let the scripture speak to you. All right. As we get into the next section here, in verses three through six, we're going to see man's frailty. So he starts with God's faithfulness, but he begins to point out man's frailty. Uh, and, he, and he says in verse three, you know, thou turnest man to destruction and sayest, return ye children of men. He goes on and talks about the shortness of our years, even down into verse 10. Uh, he talks about how our life is like uh, it's essentially a day. In the morning, you grow up. In the evening, you die. It's, it's short and it's frail, right? Uh, verse three is a little bit odd. Thou turnest man to destruction. It can be easily uh, misapplied and misused. It can put paint God into a light that would be inaccurate. Thou sayest, return you children of men. Is God encouraging people uh, into destruction? Is God pushing people into destruction? The answer is no. Uh, it's actually fairly simple. It's Genesis 3.19. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it thou wast taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Or Ecclesiastes 12, 7. Thou shalt, uh, then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. And so what Moses is recognizing is that, number one, uh, man's frailty is a curse as a result of sin. So uh, uh, Moses is taking you right back to the garden. And he's saying, yes, we are frail, but we weren't initially designed that way, but we're frail now because of sin and because of a curse. And because of that, what happens? Well, man returns to the dirt. Man is now returning unto destruction, unto, unto, the, unto the, to the dust of the earth, where he should not have been and was not designed to be. He was brought out of that, wasn't designed to go back, but now he's returning there. He points out the fact that life is exceptionally short, in verses 4 through 6, and again in 9 through 10, uh, a thousand years in thy sight are as but yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. So what we live and experience now on this earth is so, so, so short in light of what is coming. Because God is eternal. And God gave us an eternal soul. And so we will continue far beyond the frailty of the flesh. And Moses is recognizing that as well. Life, he says in verse five, is like sleep. It goes by so fast you don't even realize it, right? Like good sleep, you don't even realize that you are asleep. Like I can lay down in my bed and then uh, close my eyes 
And my wife will tell you, if I do that, if I lay down and close my eyes, I go to sleep that fast. Like, I, I, don't, I don't waste time. I just fall asleep, right? She could still be trying to turn off her bedside lamp and I'm like already out. That's, that's, that's how I sleep. But you know what? When I wake up, boom, I'm awake. Like, I think the snooze bar is the dumbest invention ever created. I don't understand it. I don't know why you would want to tell yourself to wake up 30 minutes before you actually want to wake up and be like, pretend awake. To me, it makes more sense to just sleep for 30 more minutes and then get up. I don't get it. But uh, you know what? But I, I rise early. Okay, so, but when I go to sleep and then I wake up, and you know this, like you don't recognize the passing of six, seven, eight hours. It's like, I was on the spot in my pillow, and now a second later, I'm, I'm on the spot in my pillow, I'm getting up. And what Moses said is that in the end, that's going to be how life is. You're going to be like, wait, I, this thing just started. Now I'm already done. You could talk to, well, you can talk to me. I've got kids and anyone who has kids, you're like, man, they grow up so fast. When you don't have kids and you're young, you're like, that's what all old people say. And now here I am, I'm saying it. But you could talk to someone who's older. You can talk to your grandparents and they'll be like, life goes by so fast and it does psalm 39 verse 5 behold thou hast made my days as in hand breath here it is here's all of my life right there that's it in the eyes of what actually matters and so we are frail we are broken and we have very very few days in the big picture and then what he tells us is this uh he tells us that our youth is full of growth, which is absolutely uh, a very true statement, uh, scientifically, biologically, but he, he tells us here that youth is full of growth. And then in the later years, we wither. I don't know if anyone here is old enough to feel like you're in the later years and you're withering, but I feel it already. I'm only in my 40s and I feel like I'm withering, like the flesh just like it withers. It's a good analogy because it feels really true, all right? Uh, but here's some, some practical stuff that Moses is giving you. Number one, use your youth wisely. Because in our youth, we're full of growth, we're full of energy, we're full of, we have everything that we need. Now, you're like, well, too late. I'm not young. I mean, I'm 42, and based on what we see in this, in this text, I don't have that many years left. I don't get another 42. It's 70, or if by reason of strength, 80. Do not get at math, 42 and 42 is 84. I would have been dead four years, right? Which means I'm getting there too. Like my youth is past. You're, for, for many of you, your youth is past. So then the, the other application is also this. Well, you know what? Uh, Every day that you get, when you wake up, when you arise, because in the morning, there's growth. In the morning, there's opportunity. And, and I feel that too. I'm in, like, I, you might've gleaned. I'm a natural morning person now. Like I like to wake up and just go. But I also know that I get the most uh, productive part of my day is the morning for me. But I also know that means God has to get it. God has to have my morning. If I am going to get anything from the Lord, it has to start in the morning. 
So you're old, well then use your morning wisely. Start each day and take each day individually and say, well, I'm going to use this part of my day wisely so they can get to the Lord. Now, uh, there's a couple interesting insights that come here. Verse four, a thousand years are in thy sight as but yesterday. Uh, Peter repeats that in 2 Peter 3, 8, where he tells us that a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. Moses understood it. Moses understood the same conversion. So that wasn't new when Peter said it. Moses had it. A day, a thousand years. Uh, it says a watch in the night. That's a cool thing that you can look at living in the night, living uh, on the earth without the presence of God physically here. Now, Moses had times where he actually lived in the presence of God, but then also without. And then after Moses, a lot of time uh, without. In verse 10, it tells us specifically that the lifespan will be 70 to 80 years. Insights from Moses. Remember, this is Moses. He lived a long time ago. This is an interesting insight because Moses himself was 120 when he died. Aaron was 123. Moses' father, Amram, was 137. So for Moses to go 70 to 80 years seems a little odd because that's not what what he's seen. His his older brother had died before him. He knows he's 123. He knows himself. He's He's well past that. His father almost doubled that. So it's an interesting insight, but when you look at global lifespan right now, it's 73 years. Ah, I can't trust the Bible. It's just a book, fables. It's just, you know, but here we are. Moses knew a couple thousand years ago that our global life expectancy was 70 to 80 years. And he nailed it. Hmm. Wonder who told him that. So that's interesting. So there's the applications. We want to make sure that we are using what we have because our, our years, are no, our, our days are indeed truly, truly short. All right, next section, verses seven through 11. Moses begins to reflect on God's fury. Verse seven, for we are consumed by thine anger and by thy wrath are we troubled. And being on God's bad side is troubling it's consuming it is not a place where you want to be you do not want to be the enemy of the lord you do not want to be for one second the enemy of the lord you look at your life you're like my life is nothing but toil and trouble and and it's consuming me maybe you should consider the idea that that's because you're an enemy of the lord now sometimes it's because you're actually close to the Lord and you have a different enemy that's attacking you. But I would start with this. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal savior? Do you, can you look back in your life to a time where you humbled yourself and according to what God says in scripture, accepted the truth of Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection for your sins and, and receive that for yourself? If not, well, then life is going to be troubling and all-consuming, and in the end, you're going to find out that it gets only worse, more troubling, and more consuming. But this is because God hates sin. This goes back to that curse that we talked about earlier. Um, God is, is furious. God is, is, is wrathful because of sin, because of rebellion, and God hates it. But God is also merciful, and that's the good news. While he hates sin, he's also long-suffering to usward. And he gives us opportunity for repentance. 
And that is the good news. He then goes on to say, Moses says that there are no secrets. Verse 8. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secrets in the light of thy countenance. With God, you cannot keep anything from him. All of it is made known. Our iniquities are before him. And what we think are our secret sins in the light of his countenance are revealed. Jeremiah 23, 24. Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him? Saith the Lord. Do not I fill heaven and earth? Saith the Lord. Proverbs 15, 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. In your house, in your bedroom, in your car, in your, in your cubicle, at work, or ho however you work, and your, and your earbuds are in, and you're tuned out from all the rest of the world, and it's you, and it's your thoughts, and it's you and your screen, it's you and the secret of the night. The Lord is there, and he is a furious God against sin and rebellion. Notice, though, it is uh, the countenance of the Lord, his, his face or his nature that sheds light on our sin. See, and, and we know this because when we sin, we try to hide from the presence of the Lord. It's an eight in humans that we try to, to keep our sin secret and we try to get away from the presence of the Lord. Especially those of us who are, who are saved, we know that it is the light of the word that will reveal our sin and so when we're walking in sin, we struggle with reading the word because we don't want to come before his face. We struggle with praying because we, we don't want the light to reveal and once again show us that we are living in sin. But listen, if you're living in sin, the thing that you need the most is God's face. His countenance. You need the word of God. You need prayer. You need to be in his presence. I know it hurts and it's hard to have your sin revealed. But if it's not revealed, and you don't come face to face with the righteous God, then it doesn't get dealt with. Oh, it's painful. There are tears to be shed. But that is the only way towards healing and growth. Come into his presence. When we finally do stand before him, of course, it'll be made obvious to all of us that we never could have hid from him when we see his face but before that day we have the opportunity to do that daily on our own so insights uh from moses that, that we do get here in verse 10 he does say something interesting for the days of our years are three score and ten and if by reason of strength they be four score years yet is their strength labor and sorrow for it is soon cut off and we shall fly away Moses recognized that the death of the body was not the end of, of existence. Moses uh, is, is indicating here that there is life after uh, the end of our fleshly existence. We don't just disappear, just return to dust. What Moses identifies is that we fly away. You go somewhere else and you continue to exist. So uh, Moses knew it. Man, Moses had some insights uh, for a guy who lived so long ago. Now let's talk about application. And I just told it... Um, based to you basically but i'll sum it up like this the only protection from the anger of the lord is the fear of the lord okay 
The only protection from the anger of the Lord is the fear of the Lord. There it is. So verse 11, who knoweth the power of thine anger? Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. There's only one other verse in scripture where, where fear and wrath are used together. Um, and it's Revelation eleven eighteen. It says, and the nations were angry and thy wrath is come in the time of the dead that they shall be judged and that thou shouldest, listen, judgment, wrath, but, and thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to them which fear thy name. And what does that mean practically for us? It means that daily we must live in the fear of the Lord. That is the only way that we are able to avoid the wrath of the Lord being poured out on our lives. Yes, we have if you are saved, yes, you have the protection of Jesus Christ as your Savior, and that's eternally binding. Uh, we're not talking about the wrath of the Lord in the truest sense, that you would be sent uh, into hell for eternity, but the, 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 the wrath of his anger against our, our continual rebellion, living daily in sin. If you want to avoid uh, that, if you want to avoid frustrating the Lord, then there's only one way. You must learn to fear the Lord and live in his presence. And finally, he ends with man's focus, starting in verse 12 up until the end. And I'll just give it to you uh, pretty quickly. He says this, verse 12. So, here's the summary. He's just gonna wrap it up. So, in light of all of that, because God is good and always God, and because I am frail, and because God is, is full of fury, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. And that is the summary that Moses comes to in this, in this uh, prayer of his. Because of all of those things, the only thing to boil it down to for us is this, number your days. I mean, if I really wanted to, I can figure out how many days are in 70 years and I can figure out how many days I've lived and I could literally number my days. But I don't think we need to do that. I think I need to make sure that every day gets numbered so that it counts. That every day that when I get up, this is a day that actually counts towards something in the presence of the Lord. And that we may apply our hearts into wisdom is the final analysis of Moses. Which, by the way, comes from the fear of the Lord. A couple of things that, that, that we should be praying. This is, again, the prayer of Moses as he wraps up in verse 13 uh, and 12 and 13. A wise man recognizes that his days are short. We should keep that in mind in our prayers. Recognizes that every day needs to count. Recognizes that he needs to apply his heart to wisdom. If my heart is after wisdom, then it's a good day. That's how I know it's a day that counted because my heart was after wisdom first. In verse 13, we should be praying for the return of the Lord. There's a prayer list. You can write these down as we get ready to go. Verse 14, we should be praying for the mercy of the Lord because it brings satisfaction, getting the mercy of the Lord and rejoicing or gladness. We should be asking for God's help to be glad even in affliction. Verse 15, make us glad 
even when you've afflicted us. Verse 16, we should be praying this. Let me work so that my kids can see your glory. That's the prayer in verse 16. Or the next generation, my disciple, those I'm leading. Let me work so they see God's glory. Let God get all of it. And then the final thought in verse 17, and let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yeah, the work of our hands, establish thou it. And God can only establish work that you actually do. Like he's a miracle working God who can do anything. He's not just going to make your hands work. He also let you choose that. It is interesting to remember that this is Moses. This was written most likely around the time of Numbers 14 when the entire congregation is murmuring against the Lord. And actually God has said, Moses, I'm just going to wipe them out. I'll just kill all of them and start over with you. And Moses intercedes and, and was like, let's, let's not do that. This is a guy who lived, remember, the last 40 years of his life wandering in a wilderness because of someone else's rebellion. This is a guy who understood affliction. This is a guy who is still able to praise and exalt the Lord even after failure. And here's the hope. Here's the good news to all of us. Even after failure, God can still use you. If you've messed up in your life, you've made some mistakes, you murdered a man, buried him in the sand, and ran and hid in the desert, you know what? Start numbering your days and make them useful. God redeemed Moses, and God can redeem you as well, no matter where you are and where you've come from. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we love you. We thank you for Moses and his, and his faults and his failures. Thank you that Moses didn't live a great life in many ways. I thank you even that at the end, Moses was, was full of life and full of strength, and, and you had to, to kill him for his rebellion. It ended poorly. Yet his position was, let me use every day to bring you glory. God, may that be our hearts as well. In Jesus' name, amen.